Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. As we talked about last week, Premier Racing has parted ways with driver Gary Jacobson. The first-year team is, at the time of recording, yet to confirm who will drive the 76 entry in Townsville next week. Zane Goddard was the early favourite to replace Jacobson, but he has since recommitted to Tickford Racing in his Bathurst co-driver role. Speaking of that, Tickford has confirmed its driver pairings for the Bathurst 1000. James Moffat will continue with Cam Waters. Uh, Goddard will join James Courtney. Kirk Kostecki will partner brother Jake. And Zach Best will join Thomas Randall. The Adelaide 500 is officially back. The South Aussie government has signed a five-year deal with Supercars for the race, which starts this year. As part of the deal, the Adelaide 500 will be the final round for those five years. Triple Eight and Dick Johnson Racing are testing at Queensland Raceway today. That's on Tuesday. DJR Enduro driver Tony Dalberto was meant to be taking part, but was ruled out by COVID-19 protocols. Tony flew up for a test late last month, which was rained out, so he's missed out on laps twice now. Porsche has unveiled its new LMDH prototype, the 963, which will be run by Porsche Penske Motorsport in the World Endurance Championship and the IMSA Series in the US. Aussie Matt Campbell will be part of the driver lineup alongside Andre Lotterer, Kevin Estra, Michael Christensen, Lawrence Van Tor, Matthew Jaminet, Philippe Nasser and Dane Cameron. There's a new Formula Ford coming to Australia. Motorsport Australia has announced a new multi-make formula with beefed up safety measures such as a halo, which will debut in the national championship in 2024. The existing Formula Fords will be eligible at national level until at least 2027. And legendary co-driver Coral Taylor made a successful comeback to the Australian Rally Championship in Tasmania on the weekend alongside Harry Bates. They dominated Rally Launceston in their AP4 spec Toyota Yaris. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that I'd kick through a front windscreen for, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, how are you this week? G'day, Andrew. I'm sure glad that you didn't have to kick out a windscreen for me on the weekend. Um, mm. For those who haven't seen it, there was some scary footage getting about uh, of a Ford on its side at the safari rally with officials not helping its occupants get out. So um, looking forward well, to I mean, to be fair, they, they're the ones responsible for the scary footage they were filming (laughs) yes that was extraordinary so looking forward to hearing more about that in your chat with uh, wrc reporter tommy howard later on yep absolutely we will crack into that in a bit more detail well it was all unfolding basically literally as we were recording last week and now it's official gary jacobson is no longer a premier racing driver the team confirmed that it had parted ways with jacobson following a pretty tough outing um, in Darwin, Stefan, I think there are some details on this that we may never be totally clear on, but in hindsight, his kind of erratic efforts in Darwin, they look like the work of a driver under pressure, right? 
Yeah, it seemed quite uncharacteristic at the time, the uh, the amount of incidents he was involved in over that Darwin weekend, and it was followed by some stunningly honest press quotes from Gary on, on the Sunday night where he talked about trying to be more aggressive and having overstepped the line in those efforts. It read more like a confessional than your usual PR-type quotes. So there's yeah. been no public comment from Gary since or from the team outside that short statement that it, uh, that it gave out to, um, to announce the news. Um, so it was a surprise the way all that came out. And the four-line statement was just so abrupt from the team. Like I had people asking me mm. whether there was a major indiscretion involved here. But um, if you actually wind it back a bit, like the jungle drums had been beating on it for a little while, the team's obviously yeah. uh, pretty ambitious and there was some growing discontent there about the performance. So we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the pod, like Zane Goddard doing that test on May 30, which really put the drivers on notice. And there was a little bit of talk in the background there before Darwin that a change could happen. So in, in, the, in that sort of context, it wasn't a total surprise, but the fact that it happened so immediately after the racing action in Darwin suggests there was some, some frustration there and, and the pressure valve had to be released. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, you talk about the uh, the jungle drums were beating. I mean, there was talk about potentially some pr- some, some pressure around Chris Pither's place in the lineup um, there as well not that long ago. So I think, you know, it, it does underline the ambitions of the team. Uh, we know that Zane Goddard, you know, was plan A uh, to take over the seat. Uh, Kirk Kostecki was in the mix as well, but both of those drivers have reaffirmed their commitment to Tickford Racing for the Bathurst 1000. James Golding is now being touted as the front runner. For the seat, I mean, there's plenty of talent on the sidelines around the place, but if you go chasing a Fabian Coulthard or a Michael Caruso, for example, you're going to need to fork out cash for those guys. Um, You would expect the previous arrangement that they had included some budget supplement. Um, What's the short-term game plan for Premier now, do you think, Stefan? Is there an option that won't require financial outlay that is going to be a big step up from Gary, do you think? Yeah, it's a bold call from the team to pull the trigger on this without a replacement lined up, um, especially with where that seat is. I mean, it's no secret that Gary brought funding to that deal. Um, the Subway sponsorship, I believe, is actually tied into Chris Pither's Coke deal, so that yep. um, you would expect that to stay on. But um, if you look at the the landscape, like it's, it's tough to go to the market at this point of the year when all your go-tos have have co-drives um so from from the sounds of it uh james golding is in seat 1a at the moment he's uh yeah. he's clearly the the favorite for this uh this drive even though he does have a team 18 co-drive um signed at the moment to to join scotty pie um so there's a bit to work through there, but you can see why someone in in James's position would would jump at the chance. He's been itching to get back in since uh, his full time stint ended. Yeah, I, I think this all comes back to the bigger picture for Premier and how they might get involved in the driver market for next season. As you pointed out recently, when we were talking through potential movements for 2023, you know the chatter about Will Davison being replaced at Dick Johnson Racing isn't going away, despite Davo's excellent form. I mean, he could be. He could be on the market next season and a pretty good option uh, for to help build that team. In the Tickford co-driver announcement, you know, Zane Goddard did reference a full-time option for the remainder of the year when talking about committing to Tickford. 
What's your take on on that call to go with one race instead of half a season with Premier? Yeah, it's an interesting one. You would think he would have had to have been pretty tempted by the Premier seat, but without knowing exactly what he was offered and all the details around it, it's sort of hard to know why exactly it's ended up the way it has. I mean, it'd be naive to think there's not a funding requirement for this Premier drive. And for sure. yep. either way, Zane would be trying to position himself the best he can for for 2023. But I guess like parking some of the, the detail, like it's just a fascinating discussion at this point of a season, whether you would give up a co-drive for, for a half season in a team that's running at the back. So it's, yep. yeah, it, and it's very much circumstance dependent, isn't it? If you, if you are a Fabian Coulthard and you can go and win Bathurst with Chaz Mostert, You'd, you'd stay, you'd reckon, in in the deal yeah. that you've got. But if you're a if you're a Golding who's young and eager for that opportunity, and you know last year at Team 18, like his car only did six laps in the race at Bathurst, and it's the only Enduro yeah. there is. So in in Supercars terms, that was a completely wasted year for his his career. So um, yeah, it's it's an interesting discussion, and we just don't have this very often with a with a mid season change like this. No, exactly. And, you know, you, you mentioned the funding that has to come with it. If you look at the way that car's been liveried up this year, it seems that it's kind of – it's not necessarily funding with a heap of uh, with a heap of signage space on the car either. It's a case of, you know, there's there's some cash that needs to go into this and this is how the car's going to run because of the agreement with um, with Subway. So, yep, it is, uh, it is very interesting and uh, I guess we'll see how it's going to play out very soon because we're going to be on track in, you know, just over a week in Townsville and someone's got to be sitting in that car. And as you say, I'm pretty sure it's going to be James Golding. Well, there's a new Formula Ford coming to Australia, Steph, and this is something Motorsport Australia and its Formula Ford technical working group has been working on for about a year now. The initial idea was a series, uh, was a one-make series, which sounded a lot like the Formula Australia plan that Roland Dane had been working on. Uh, it was also quite similar to Formula Four, which, as we know, bombed pretty hard Uh, but thankfully the one make plan is dead and instead multiple manufacturers will be able to build these new cars they will still be a space frame which is a tubular metal frame but we'll have a halo and beefed up safety measures like crash structures and wheel tethers Uh, the idea is the cars will be around a second a lap faster and cost about 110 gram which is you know fairly similar to a current car the current cars will be eligible until at least 2027 and there is no date limit on the existing cars in state series competition or the new cars filtering down to state series competition yet the New Look National Championship will be eligible for Super Licence Points, uh, which comes as part of this sort of overall thawing of relations between Motorsport Australia and Formula Ford after a few years of friction due to the whole Formula 4 thing. Stefan, what are your thoughts on Formula Ford Mark II? Well, Andrew, you're far deeper into the Formula Ford world than I am, so I'm really looking forward to what you've got to say about all this. But um yeah, on face value, there's a fair bit to like with the way they've rolled this out so far. Obviously, change on this scale is riddled with potential issues, but um, the actual process is is very important. You've got to consult with the right people and work through it together. And clearly, Motorsport Australia massively failed on that when they rolled out F4. Any concern in that process appeared to be really dismissed as a vested interest so here they've at least had a working group with a with an array of people involved, including people directly involved in Formula Ford at the moment. So when you look at some of the detail they've put out, 
you know, the, the safety elements were clearly very important for Motorsport Australia, for Formula Ford to properly be the junior development formula with a national championship and, and all of that. It had to have a halo on it and all those other safety elements that they've announced. So, yeah, the, the class where parents put their kids straight out of carts has to be best practice on safety. There's, uh, there's not too much argument about that, I don't think. So they've done that. They've kept it space frame to control the cost. They've kept it multi-make, which really retains that DNA of the category. And they've got that sort of roadmap planned out going forward that people can uh, prepare for. But with all that said... The changeover does look quite tricky there with, you know, the ability to go between state and national has always been important with these Formula Ford cars. So what's yeah. your, yeah, what's your read? What's the vibe in the sort of Formula Ford world of how this is going to roll out? Look, fundamentally, I applaud Formula Ford being welcomed back into the Motorsport Australia fold properly. Uh, the category never really went anywhere despite the very, very best efforts of the governing body, which shows just how good it is as a development category. Uh, in fact, a lot of the things that kind of, you know, a lot of being sort of pushed back to running at state series rounds and stuff to form a national series, it just drove costs down so much and actually had a really positive effect on the grid size and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's sort of proven over over the years, the, those years in the uh, being sort of forced out into the wilderness that, you know, cost containment is so important at that level of motorsport because, you know, Motorsport Australia stripped everything they could out of it and tried to make it as unappealing as possible and it kept going because it was still the cheapest way to go racing um, at that level and at a level that was still recognised by people in the know that understood the benefit that it had on, on driver development. So, um, but look, it is going to be it is going to be good to be to be you know back in the Motorsport Australia fold in a in a positive way. I have some questions about it. Firstly, who's going to make these new cars? I mean, saying it's going to be multi-make is fine as long as we have manufacturers making the car. Mike Borland's been involved in the working group from Spectrum, so I assume that there must be some level of interest shown or commitment there that, you know, that they will build these new cars. Um, so we need, you know, you, you, there obviously has to be a market there um, for people to build them and people to buy them and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, a bit of a question mark over that. Uh, secondly, remember we're still asking competitors competitors to spend uh, more than a hundred grand on a new car when many have what they probably feel like is a perfectly good car sitting there already that they already own or they already lease or whatever. Um, so, you know, you've still got the tricky sales job of going out to competitors and saying, right, you need to spend what is still a heck of a lot of money. It might not be in motor racing terms, but it's still going to be more than a hundred grand. And we traditionally see these things tend to tend to overblow in terms of costs rather than come in cheaper. Um, and a second point to that, to, to, to basically having people need to go out and get new cars, I mean, motorsport is facing the challenge of sustainability in a changing world. And it's it's a space that motorsport Australia is generally very proactive in, in terms of sustainability, being conscious of the environment, all these things that are important factors in the modern world. You know, we can't use Avgas in Kent-powered Formula Fords now because it has lead in it and that's seen to be bad for the environment, uh, which is fine. But if you, you know, you have to imagine that the final objective of this new Formula Ford is that it eventually takes over from our old Formula Ford at all levels and will effectively be rendering hundreds and hundreds of racing cars around the country obsolete over a period of time, which in my mind is the complete opposite of sustainability because there's a footprint to building new cars and there's a footprint to having old cars sitting around doing nothing. 
the safety changes are good. Your point on that is 100% right. Um, could we have done it with bolt-on parts on the existing cars? You know, like you could put a halo on the existing car and all that sort of stuff. I don't know, maybe. We're not reacting to a spate of injuries in these cars. You know, there hasn't been any serious injuries in a long time. They aren't overly dangerous cars. So whether whether some of the desired safety outcomes could have been achieved, given the fact we're not going to a monocoque, could have been achieved with bolt-on parts, I don't know. I think that would have been something that was looked at and obviously decided against. And then you start to think, well, why is that? And, you know, if I really put my really cynical hat on for a second – Maybe Motorsport Australia just wasn't necessarily in a position to let Formula Ford back into the building as it is or very close to as it is because we were told it was no good and had to be replaced by Formula Ford all those years ago and it would be the ultimate admission that that wasn't the case at all if they just said, okay, well, look, this thing's still going and it's still it's, it's what we need as part of our ladder, so let's just bring it straight back in as it is. So, you know, is ensuring there are some – significant changes to the category, is there an element of face-saving there? It's definitely plausible. But in saying all that, your point about the fact that the consultation has been much better is is 100% right. Um, the Formula Ford Association is on board with this change and it's good that they've been involved in the process because they can have a say and ensure that it's not just you know a, a detached governing body saying, well, this is how this is going to be now because that's what it was last time. So it, it definitely – you know, it's not perfect, but it, it it could have been it could have been a lot worse. You know, there certainly other iterations of the plan were nowhere near as positive as this one. So yeah, that's kind of where I sit on it. It's interesting to look at it in the context of the global junior open wheel sphere as well. Obviously, the beauty of Formula Ford back in the day was they used to run it everywhere, and it was so strong in the UK. Do you think with this rule set? There is potential to then export it into other into other markets. Potentially, but the thing is, we got to remember that we're we're just a different place. We're a different motor racing environment. Like that was always an advantage. You could do Formula Ford in Australia, and then you could go to the Formula Ford Festival, and then you could race Formula race British Formula Ford or whatever, and you were sort of on the stepping stone to to British F three and all that sort of stuff now, but. Um, you've seen your, your Formula 4s and your Formula Regionals and all that stuff do great business in Europe and it just didn't work here because it's just different over here, you know, and we're trying to teach drivers to drive different cars. Um, I, 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 I don't know that the relevance to overseas categories is necessarily super important. I don't think we have to worry about whether this thing can be exported elsewhere because as long as we have a strong Formula Ford here, you're learning what you need to learn to go and buy to go to go and jump in a in a Formula Renault car, or you're learning what you need to learn to drive a supercar. We're sticking with with you know sequential shift, um, with a uh, mechanical gear shift and a clutch and all that stuff. You're learning those skills in Formula Ford. So I think that it's probably not something that's going to spread around the world because I think in Europe they've got they've got their pathway reasonably well set up at the moment. It's here where the pathway's been broken because Formula Ford didn't work. The model that worked in Europe didn't work, and that's why. We're taking this unique approach because we have a unique kind of motor racing landscape here. And the reality of the now compared to decades gone by is that um, these young kids that want to try to get to F1, they don't really spend some of them any time racing cars here before going to Europe. Exactly. Yep. 
No, that's exactly right. But with something like Formula Ford, and you know, a lot of the positive elements will be retained. You know, H pattern gearboxes. Um, you know, you still got to you got to learn. That's where you learn to heel and toe. So you've picked up a skill that you might use. Um, you know, if you if you go to Europe, you might not use. You go to Europe, it's not going to hurt to have that skill. But if you want to be a supercars driver, you got to learn to heel and toe. That's how you get the best out of a supercar. You know, everyone says that the magic happens in the braking area. That's where the really quick guys go really quick. Um, you learn those skills in Formula Ford. Um, and if you just jump into something with paddles and two pedals, mm. you're not learning that. Yep. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it rolls out from here. So 2024 is when it is meant to debut and we will see how it integrates into uh, what we've got at the moment. It will definitely be fascinating. Well, let's move on to a former Formula Ford, Australian Formula Ford driver, Matty Campbell, um, and his sensational call-up to Porsche's LMDH program. This is the final step in the Porsche pyramid for the Queenslander, and it's really great news for, for Aussie motorsport. And I think he's really, you know, he, he's shown how that Porsche pathway um, can work for you if you've if you've got the if you've got the talent. Um, and you make the most of your opportunities. Uh, Matt addressed some Aussie media this morning, and here's what he had to say about this exciting news. Really, really excited. I mean, nice to finally get it off the chest because I've known for, for quite a long time now. So now that it's finally announced, it's a, it's a big relief because uh, obviously so much has been going on in the background. But, uh, yeah, big things coming up, obviously, with, with next year and, and the future. Um, you know, a big step for me moving into prototypes now and to – into LMDH uh, with Porsche Penske Motorsport. So, um, yeah, big step, but uh, looking forward to it and, and really enjoyed the, the time so far. So, uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of things to come. Definitely uh, definitely been in the car and been testing. I mean, it's still pretty raw and everything like that. Still a lot of work to do, but, uh, yeah, been in the car a couple of times now. I uh, still need a lot more miles, uh, that's for sure, but uh, feeling comfortable already. Um, and now the testing will start to switch over to, to US as well. So, uh, yeah, we've sort of only got a couple more tests to go in, in Europe before the, the majority of testing now moves over to uh, to US. So, uh, yeah, much more miles to come in the car, which is really important. Um, you know, obviously for us, there's a lot of us drivers that don't have much prototype experience. So the next uh, six months will be really critical for the finalising car development and also just getting comfortable in the car and getting used to all the systems and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's quite uh, quite surreal. I think it really hit me when, when we went live with the announcement because I've known for about a year or, or so that, uh, you know, I'll be involved in the in the program. And, uh, yeah, it's surreal, you know, sort of reaching the, the pinnacle of the, the Porsche Motorsport Pyramid, you know, reaching the top, which was all our, always our goal. And, uh, you know, sort of the last box to, to tick, you know, with myself and uh, my, my supporters and my company, MCR, I mean... Uh, you know, we've been fortunate enough to tick every box along the way. You know, winning Pro Cup Australia number one, winning the Porsche Junior Program shootout, moving over doing Super Cup, moving on from that, you know, professional program, Porsche factory driver, and now this. You know, it's uh, it's real. It's what I always looked up and, and aimed to do. Uh, from the moment I joined Porsche, obviously at the time, but I was still an LEP1. And then that all sort of ended, and, and now this. So, uh, you know, surreal to be able to finally be in this position and uh, get a full-time factory gig uh, in a factory car. So uh, very exciting and, uh, yeah, nice, um, I suppose, progression and, and it really pays off, you know, for everyone that's been involved in my journey. So very, very special for, for all those involved. 
All right, let's take a look at what's been happening around the world. Francesco Bagnaia won the Dutch TT at Assen ahead of Marco Bezecchi and Maverick Vinales. Championship leader Fabio Quattararo crashed twice in the race. Jack Miller finished sixth after being passed by Aleix Espargaro at the last corner, and Remy Gardner finished 19th. Chase Elliott won a twice-weather delayed NASCAR Cup Series race at the Nashville Super Speedway ahead of Kurt Busch, while Wayne Taylor Racing pair Philippe Albuquerque and Ricky Taylor won the six hours of the Glen IMSA race. Robert Wickens took his first race win since his horror IndyCar crash in 2018. He and Mark Wilkins shared a Hyundai Elantra to victory in the TCR class of the Michelin Pilot Challenge race at Watkins Glen. Yuri Vips has been suspended by Red Bull after being heard using racist language during a video game live stream. The Estonian is part of the Red Bull junior team and has been competing in F2 with a high-tech Grand Prix. And Calais Rovampera dominated the Safari Rally in Kenya in what was a 1-2-3-4-4 Toyota. To tell us more about that, I grabbed the Motorsport Network's WRC editor, Tom Howard, for a chat from on the ground in Kenya. Tommy, firstly, tell me about your safari experience. That's an event that I would love to see in the flesh one day. How's it been to actually be on the ground? Yeah, it's. I've got to say, it's an amazing event. Really, is uh, quite something special. Um, certainly, from from a career point of view, it's um, it's right up there in, in things I've ever done. Um, it really is just so completely different, and um, you do feel like you are going on a proper adventure. Like it's just. Yeah, you're you're in unfamiliar surroundings, but it's what what I like about it the most is the fact that um, it's such a it's such a big deal over here. Like this is their biggest sporting event in the country, so everyone is just super rally mad over here. Like that, you you walk and talk to the to the local Kenyans, and they know the ins and outs of everything. Like it's ridiculous. So um, yeah, they're so passionate about it and so friendly. Um, just. It's a lovely, lovely place to visit and uh, what an event. It's just so tough, so tough. A real proper test of any driver and machine. Um, I, th- I think we've only got a few of these left sort of in motorsport and this is right up there as one of them. Well, Kelly Rovampera made it look pretty easy there, mate. He was just um, he was just too good on the weekend and, and a 30-year first for Toyota with a one, two, three, four. They must have been uh, pretty happy chappies there at, uh, at Toyota. Yeah, Calderon Pera is, I don't know what it's going to take to stop this guy. Like, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, I don't think he's had a puncture all year, uh, which is saying something because I think, yeah, everyone's had countless. Um, but yeah, he's just been, he's just unstoppable. Uh, the guy just can't, he's just so cool and calm and collected behind the wheel. It's it, It's quite worrying. And a lot of people are just a bit, scared just how dominant he's going to be because no one really can touch him at the moment. Uh, he, he's just super supreme. I mean, the, the only blemish he had was on Thursday in the opening uh, super special in Nairobi, which was pretty special, right? It, you know, in the middle of uh, a sort of the grounds of their national stadium, they created a uh, super special two by two Perth style, shall we say, uh, super special. Uh, in the backdrop of the city and the and the national park, which is quite quite spectacular. But anyway, going back to what happened, uh, yeah, Cali was doing that stage and uh, almost rolled his his Yaris and picked up a puncher. But that's the only the only problem he had the entire weekend. He did get a little bit ill on uh, on Saturday, and I think most of us all all got ill at some point. Uh, but somehow he, he just has this ability to uh, 
to pull through. And the key to the victory really was on Saturday when the rain came down. He just uh, simply was better than anybody when the when it got really muddy and slippery, like proper old safari spec. Um, and uh, he, um, Yari Matti Latvala, his team boss, actually credited that by um, Callie Robin Perez. Uh, extracurricular activities and doing some drifting events. Callie's been doing a few drifting events uh, for fun just because he loves driving anything he can. And uh, he feels like the skills that he's been learning there actually gave him the edge in the wet, uh, which was uh, which was quite an interesting thought. I, I actually put that to Callie and he, he kind of laughed it off, but he did actually sort of say, well, yeah, I have been I've been doing quite a lot of that, so maybe it, maybe it did help. But uh, yeah, once once he got ahead on, on Saturday, he sort of extended his his lead on Saturday night to, to almost a minute over Alfred Evans, his teammate. And uh, Sunday was, I guess, a relatively easy drive. But I say that nothing is easy here in Safari. If you can get yourself to the finish, you can count yourself very, very lucky because there's so many things that can stop you here. And uh, there were six stages on Sunday, which is more than your usual Sunday. So uh, 80 kilometers, in fact. So it's a real, it's not, it, you know, anything could happen still. So he um, he did back off, and it was very much preservation mode. But uh, again, he labelled it his hardest ever victory, and, and I can understand that he had to battle through illness, and then anything that uh, that Safari threw at him, which is a lot of things, whether it's deep sand, ridiculously rough, rocky gravel stages, um, the weather, the, the wildlife. It, you know, there's is a lot to, to reckon with but so you've got to really take your hat off to him because this is a this is a remarkable win absolute disaster for hyundai and m sport um did i say m sport putting the drivers to work at one point i definitely yes. saw gus greensmith uh kicking in his uh his the windscreen on his car at one point what was going on there yeah, we'll start with M-Sport. Yeah, it was an absolute... Um, well, there was a disaster for Hyundai and M-Sport. They both really, really struggled. Uh, a lot of it down to reliability. And, and this is the place where it's going to highlight those weaknesses the most because this place really is tough. Like The organisers made the rally tougher this year than last year because they wanted it to be a bit more like the old Safari, which was a real, as you know, a real marathon, brutal event. And yeah, they you could tick that box. They did that pretty well. Um, when you've when you've got deep sand like that, it, like re- realistically, you you want a Dakar car to go through that rather than a rally car. It's that it's that tough. But going back to Emsport, yes, um, yeah, they've had a lot. Let's put it this way: there's, the damage bill at Emsport this year has been pretty high. Um, there's been a lot of incidents, and the mechanics have had the, probably the most work to do out of anyone in the in the service park. And I think uh, after the latest sort of uh, retirements uh, here, so all, all four works cars retired at some point during the rally here this this weekend um, due to either crashes or mechanical issues or, or whatever. Uh, so when Gus Greensmith had a puncture on Friday, um, really he should have stopped to fix that straight away, but kept going and ripped the back of his car off, which is not a ideal situation and basically that ruined his rally because it cost him 13 minutes to change the wheel instead of two um so obviously the team weren't too happy about that and then when he rolled again on saturday after rejoining the rally uh it was a slow roll but again you know avoidable um you can imagine the, the mechanics weren't too pleased to have to rebuild that again and um sport boss malcolm wilson said if you want to return on sunday you go and repair that car help the guys out 
So they, um, him and Adrian Formo, the other driver who had a, some some difficulty, shall we say, um, the first probably for Formo was self-inflicted. The other, perhaps not. Uh, they both donned the M Sport overalls and uh, got to work. And um, yeah, they they fixed the cars with with the crew, which was. Uh, an interesting scenario to see, but just going back to that Greensmith role, that was quite a, a nasty, well, a potentially nasty incident because um, there were marshals there, but they refused to to help uh, him and Jonas Anderson get out of the car. Um, he'd rolled onto its side, and uh, they couldn't get out. They were trapped in the car for three minutes. Um, and in Croatia, uh, when Oliver Solberg had a similar accident. The exhaust actually um, set fire to the car. So they were very worried that the car was going to go up in flames. Um, so Gus, being sort of concerned, just thought, well, how am I going to get out? So he just kicked the windscreen out. And they climbed through the uh, the front of the car and uh, were, were not best pleased, let's say, with the, with the marshals. Um, they then righted the car, got back in, and uh, drove it for another stage or so. So without a windscreen, uh, they donned some goggles, um, it was quite a spectacular sight. They got to the end, but unfortunately, uh, some cooling issues, believe it or not, uh, for the engine um, made them stop after the end of stage nine. Crazy stuff. Looks like there was a really good news story in WRC with the first female round winner in uh, in that category. Yeah. Um, yeah, very, very good news story there. Uh, Maxime Wahomi uh, is, a, is a 26-year-old Kenyan girl. Uh, she only took up rallying at this event last year, so she's only been doing it a year, and this was her first outing in the uh, the new Rally 3 M Sport Ford Fiesta car, um, and uh, she only went and won the WRC 3 category. Um, dominated it, in, in fact, um, was an impressive, really impressive performance. So she's the first, first woman to win a WRC 3 category uh, round, and uh, she's also the first woman to win a WRC support series since 1994. So um, quite quite an impressive achievement for, for her. And uh, she uh, she I actually spoke to her on Thursday before the event and um, she said that Molly Taylor was her idol growing up and um, she lo- would love to meet her one day and, and hopefully gets the opportunity. But it does look like now that uh, she may well be off to Europe to do some more rounds uh, following this success. That is uh, absolutely fantastic stuff. Well, Tommy, I'm very jealous of your Kenyan adventures. It sounds like it's even more fun than trudging around Coffs Harbour looking at uh, looking at rally cars. So good job there. Thanks for um, taking some time to join us on the pod, and we'll check back in with you later in the season. Cool. Thanks, mate. And we thank Tommy for his time. You can read all his wonderful work at autosport.com and motorsport.com. Okay, Castro mailbag time, Stefan. Brian Freer asked, with Sandown on its way out, could there be an opportunity for two New Zealand rounds? Well, a New Zealand doubleheader is a discussion point that's been around forever and ever and ever, and it makes sense in so many ways. Kiwis love motorsport. There are plenty of great circuits over there. You could have one race on the North Island and one on the South Island, and given how, you know, if we look at the fact that travel costs almost sunk the event for this year, um, spreading those costs out over two events makes just a lot of sense as well. So why has it never happened? Well, Auckland pays for the super, pays for supercars to come to New Zealand, and they want supercars to be racing in Auckland and not anywhere else. It's a the, the whole arrangement would have to basically be rewritten um, because of the funding that comes out of Auckland Unlimited to get the category 
over the ditch. Stefan, what are your thoughts on a Kiwi double header? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you mentioned that there's a lot of cool circuits over there, but when you then try to sift out the ones with the infrastructure and everything around them that you need to run a big show like supercars, it does uh, it does certainly rule a few of them out. So, yeah. I mean, it's easy to forget that, um, what, like in, in 2020, supercars were going to go to Hampton Downs. Um, mm-hmm. It yeah. was uh, an unusual situation there with... Uh, the Anzac Day uh, issue they had, which meant they couldn't uh, actually race at Pukekohe. But um, that idea is theoretically cool, actually, to do Pukekohe on one weekend and Hampton Downs on, on another, um, which is yeah. some, the sort of thing that, like, pre-COVID, you just never think about running in the same same sort of um, market twice, but they did all those double-header events at the same tracks. So, um, yeah. yeah, something like that would be cool, but, again, you're dipping into the same same market and the same funding person and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's a discussion that always comes up, but um, it's still hard to see it happening, I reckon. If there's uh, a spare slot on the calendar, then uh, Queensland Raceway would have to be the clubhouse leader to, uh, to pick that up. Yeah, that's very true. And the, the, the funny little thing, I mean, uh, Pukekohe and Hampton Downs are so close to each other, but they're actually in separate, mm. you know, they're not called states. What are they? They're called like government yeah. territory areas. I've, I've, I can't remember the exact term, but they're actually, you know, so Pukekohe is in Auckland uh, and Hampton Downs uh, isn't. So it's not even a necessarily conversation of saying to, to Auckland Limited, hey, can we just up the funding or can we run two rounds, you know, because one of them technically, even though they're only like half an hour away from each other, isn't actually uh, in Auckland. But anyway, I think it's time to hand out some Castrol Stars of the Week. Stefan, who you got this week, mate? My Castrol Star of the Week is three-time 500cc motorcycle world champion Wayne Rainey. He rode his 92 title winning Yamaha at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. It was the first time him on a GP bike since he was paralysed in a crash in 93. So Goodwood is an incredible event every year, but uh, this was a really special part of it in uh, 2022. Absolutely. That is a fantastic Castrol Star of the Week. Good choice, Stefan. I'm going to stick with the Goodwood theme and give my star to the rather unusual-looking McMurtry Automotive Spearling. I hope I've said that right. I'm pretty sure I haven't. This little car is powered by an electric motor and can generate 2,000 kilograms of downforce from a fan. It's now the fastest car to ever go up the Goodwood Hill Climb uh, with Max Chilton at the wheel. He stopped the clocks at 39.08 seconds, and the video is absolutely wild. It is well worth a watch if you haven't already seen it. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast, and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.